On this episode of Radcast Outdoors, we sit down with Mr. Rick Parrish of Sheridan, Wyoming. Rick has been bow hunting for many, many years, and he shares some insights on some of the tips that you'll need to be successful bow hunting in the wild. But he also talks about an epic hunt where he killed a 2,300-pound bull bison. So we'll get the details from him on that epic story. And trust me, you won't want to miss this one. So we hope you enjoy this episode of Ragcast Outdoors. This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. All right, here we are again at the Wyoming Bowhunters Convention up here in Sheridan, Wyoming. And David and I, we've been having a good time. We've been meeting a lot of cool people. And I was over here, we were chatting, and I was chatting with Mr. Rick Parrish. Welcome to the show. How are you? Well, um, I'm doing great, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so I'm a fisherman, so I have to say I'm like a fish out of water here because this is kind of a new crowd for me. It's a lot of fun, but a lot of people I don't know and had a really good time getting to visit with you a little bit. But tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, let's see. I've been uh, shooting a bow since I was six years old, so I, I this is a great crowd for me to be in. But uh, <laughs> But no, I just, uh, I've been living in Wyoming for 38 years and uh, just uh, enjoy all that it has to offer from fishing. I love fly fishing and, and uh, I used to, I grew up in South Dakota where I, on the Missouri River, so I, I've done walleye. There's northern. a couple fish there. Yeah, there's a couple <laughs> fish there. So yeah, in fact, uh, my backyard backed up to the, um, the river there. And in the winter when it freeze, we'd go hit golf balls out on the ice to see if we could get them all the way across the river. <laughs> Because the river's almost a mile wide there, so that was an interesting thing for a high schooler to do. But, uh, but yeah, no, I love Wyoming and all that it has to offer. And uh, fly fishing and bow hunting are my two biggest passions. So, well, uh, you and I will get along just fine. Yeah, well, good, good, <laughs> good. That's great. So, if if I don't have a bow in my hand, I've got a fly rod in my yeah, hand. There we go. Yeah, David's all about that fly fishing. Yeah, I don't, I don't. Uh, I don't discriminate against the rifle or the, or the rod and reel, but yeah. <laughs> the spinning bait casters, if, if I have to, well, it catches fish. Rifles kill critters. I I, I, yeah. I sometimes cave. Well, that's why uh, fly fishing's so fun because you're always doing something, oh, and, yeah. and and half the time on those uh, narrow creeks, you know, on on tangling out of those willows. <laughs> yes, yeah. there's just yes. a couple of willows, you know. I, I snapped a really nice 4.8 fly rod one day. I, I had been in the tight timber all day fishing a narrow little creek. I got out in a nice open bend, right? Yeah. There was one, like, four-foot little tree behind me, and I was going to cast all the way up to the top. I got a big old back cast and went to heavy front cast and just snap. I Ouch. caught that tree behind me. Ouch. My little four-piece rod did uh. not survive. Well, hopefully he had a warranty on the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been pretty cool because I'm looking at this wall behind me and there's all these different skull mounts and different trophies and everybody's going through and they're evaluating and I see your name next to a whole bunch of these. But while we were talking, you told me about a bison that was enormous. So what I want to do is just kind of talk about that a little bit because I was a little bit in disbelief until I started seeing these pictures of this animal. So let's talk about that. Well, uh, once I had it on the ground, I was in disbelief too. But uh, so for a long time, uh, bow hunters of Wyoming worked on trying to get where we could archery hunt bison in the state of Wyoming. And the second year that we were eligible, I drew a tag, tag number 13. So you're like, you know, is that good or bad? <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was pretty excited. Um, I went over to, uh, at that time when you were archery hunting, you could not hunt on the elk refuge. So we had to hunt in the national forest. And as I did the research and stuff, a lot of the bigger bulls um, tend to go up into the mountains and hang out by themselves. So. So I figured that was a good opportunity. And uh, anyway, I, I went over to the area a few days early and camped with my wife, and she went back home. And, and uh, opening day, I actually got on a nice bull, 
and was circling around on him and at about 50 yards the wind swirled and he picked it up and I actually watched him run for almost a mile and a half all the way back to the to the elk refuge and I was like wow this is going to be a little tougher than I thought <laughs> um, but uh, on day six of my hunt I actually saw a bull way up on top of a mountain snuck up there and uh, got up there and I couldn't find him and so there was this big ridge that was almost a cliff and I peeked down off of it sure enough I found him down there and he was like in a horseshoe shape of aspen trees and I uh, I started down there the wind was really strong out of the east and I get down in the bottom and it's out of the west I mean as anyone that elk hunts in the mountain or deer hunts in the mountain you know how the wind is fickle like that <laughs> it does change it does and so I got down there and uh, there was this horseshoe th thing of aspens and I'll give you sort of the quick story because it's a it's a fairly long story but uh, I, I uh, had to go up into the scree and come around and and I got into one of the legs of the horseshoe and he was feeding down in the aspens at the bottom of the U as I'll call it and uh, I stepped out of the aspens and I looked to my right and here's a great big dust wallow and there's fresh pea and stuff in it and I had one little eight-foot aspen behind me and about a six-footer in front of me and this bison started moving to my left and I thought he was going to go through the U of aspen trees and I was going to pop out there and get a shot at him well no here he turns and starts coming right at me and uh, <laughs> and so I was I was ranging him and uh, I was like 60 55 50 45 40 um, I don't need this thing anymore yeah, he's close <laughs> enough. When he when he makes a mistake, so, it's over. But I made a mistake there because I, I just reached down and put it between my knees because I thought action was going to happen fast. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna step back for just one second here. I was a Parks and Recreation director down in Cheyenne, and we had a zoo, and we had mm -hmm. bison down I there. I remember that. And we actually would go in there in the in either in a pickup or in the bucket of the front end loader when we had to deal with the bison. And uh, so I knew how fast, and I mean, we had them jump over the hood of a pickup truck before, so I know how fast and mean <laughs> and, and stuff bison can be. And so as he's coming at me, I'm like, oh my goodness. He's either gonna go to the left of me or the right of me like at two or three yards, and I was, I was pretty nervous. Well, here he stops at about 22, 23 yards, and he beds down with his head towards me and his butt away from me. And he's, he's there. Well, as I had mentioned earlier, I still have that range finder in between my knees. And so he's, he's just content to be chewing his cud. And I'm starting to get back and butt cramps from holding this. <laughs> so I've actually had people come up when I've told the story before and have them put an ashtray between their knees. I tell you what, I was sitting there talking to myself. I was like, this is your only chance. Don't screw this up. This is, <laughs> don't let this, don't. And I don't know why I just didn't let it drop to the ground. But of course, you know, rangefinders aren't cheap. And anyway, so it had been probably 25, 30 minutes into this little standoff of me more than, than the bison. Y you and the rangefinder. Me and the rangefinder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, the bison didn't care, he's no, just he taking a nap. He, he had no idea I was even there. Well, I got a wind swirl, and his head snapped around him, and I just froze. And uh, and I was like, Oh my goodness, what's uh, what's gonna go down here? Well, the wind went back to normal, and he started chewing his cut again. And so then I started worrying about the cramps and this damn range fighter <laughs> that I had put on and on myself, and so. It was probably about a 45-minute standoff, and the wind swirled again, and I, to this day, I can't remember how he was standing the next thing I knew. And he's staring straight at me at, you know, 20 to 23 yards, and he's trying to get my scent. So as m most uh, animals do, they're licking their, their nose and trying to get the moisture there, and he's swinging his head back and forth. And this goes on and on, and pretty soon he looks like Cujo. Because, you know, their heads are very low. He's picking up grass, and he's licking his, and they're just live all over. And I'm like, oh, my, this is not going to end well. <laughs> and I kept telling myself, so if he comes at me, um, because the year before, a person had been mauled pretty bad by a bison um, in the area. 
They had to be life lighted out to Salt Lake City. And so that was running through my mind. And the fact that, uh, you know, here I am all by myself, two and a half miles up Ditch Creek above the Teton Science um, Center and in the mountains. And I'm like, uh, this, you know, so I told myself, as, and some people probably aren't going to believe this when they hear this. I said, if he comes, wait till he's right on you because they are so fast. Touch him and backflip. Just push off of his head and backflip. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but, but you know, I <laughs> made you feel better. I it's a good plan. myself at the time. So, you know, how idiotic that sounds, you know, but, you know, most of us hunters are idiotic at times anyway. So, anyway, well, pretty soon he sort of swings to the left and I start to draw my bow and he catches it and he just bears down on me and I'm like, oh my goodness. And uh, I think he's going to come now. But luckily, he swung his head to the left, and I was able to uh, redraw, and um, I just found his leg when I drew, come up his body, and I shot, and all I could see was the knock sticking out, and he took off, went down through the bottom of the U, I ran through the Aspens, and he waited at about another 60 yards, and down he went. And, uh, and I knew he was a nice bison, and I knew he was big, but I... It, it took him probably about 15 minutes to expire, but when I went walking up to him, I was like just floored. I mean, the mass of it. He was he was 11 and a half feet, as you saw the pictures I that showed was crazy. you, from his nose to the to his butt, and he weighed, you know. And so I had tag and drag bring him in. They said, "Oh, this is probably the biggest bison we've ever drug out." And the Game and Fish does a lot of research on the bison um, mm -hmm. for their licenses and stuff. So you have to have tail hair and you have to have teeth that you give to them blood from the heart and different things and so um, they took it into I had it taken to the Teton locker plant and they estimated the live weight of the bison at 2,360 pounds that's insane and that was the third largest bison that they have ever recorded but what was really funny getting back to the drag out I climbed to the top of the mountain called tag and drag to help me get it out and then I said you know it's a little warm they said they said tunnel in and so as I'm I, I actually as I was hiking back I ran into two other hunters one from the Hannah area that I previously had known and a friend of his and they come to help me but to go up and cut the trachea out I was I was all the way to my belt line I took off my shirt to get in there to cut the trachea out to get uh, the lungs and then and stuff out of the body cavity it was it was it was a lot of carnage I'll just say that <laughs> um, but uh, but when tag and drag dra drug it out, they drag it out on those uh, conveyor belt mats, and it kept falling off. And it was, and uh, when they tried to lift it up with their hoist and their winch, they bent it. And but we, the first, the front half of it, we fit into an eight-foot pickup box bed. Just barely. Just, just barely. barely closed you guys it. saw. I showed you guys the pictures. <laughs> it's it's just unbelievable. And to give our listeners a, a context, you know, my bison that I shot, the whole bison, he was a three-year-old bull. I don't know, weighed somewhere 1,100 pounds, maybe more, but not a whole lot more. He fit yeah. in, in the, the, not a half in a whole bed. The whole thing was in one whole bed of a pickup. Yeah, so, yeah, he, he was just, it was just a tremendous um, specimen. And then when I got the tooth aging back, he was 13 and a half years old. Wow. So. Which was something I wanted to mention is, you know, people always wonder this, why hunting is conservation, right? Those biologists depend on that data to help herd management, to run their statistics and their, to do everything that they do. And they need those samples to really see how herd overall stability management health is doing. Right? Yes, yes, they do. And so, you know, so it's our responsibility as a ethical and conservation-minded hunter to supply them with that data. Yeah, so, I mean, we we whine a little bit about having to, you know, I've... We, we, you got getting blood from the heart. You got to get the vial out of their bag and get the fresh blood and you get the blood from the cavity and then pull yep. the teeth. And yeah, it's, it's a little bit of work in the field and you've got to have a little bit of pre-planning to have those supplies with you. But yep. I'm sure the biologists really appreciate that data. Well, and the game and fish in Jackson do a great job of that. They give you a kit for that. And so when you go in the field, you have that with you. And so, and then they have a really easy drop off system because I was fortunate four years later to draw cow tag so so i've been through it twice so you've killed a bull and a cow with a bow in I, wyoming yes i have 
That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, kudos. That's that's neat. I I mean, having killed a bison with a bow, I know what it's. It's not easy. You just described it, and it's <laughs> it's a little intimidating. Yep. You know, elk's one thing, deer is another, but bison are just. It's yeah. It's it huge. Was, it was just unbelievable the size. You know, and and I prepared for it. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I up my arrow weight tremendously and and practice with that kind of a weight of an arrow, and you know, I had it a about 750 grain arrow and a two blade broadhead to make sure I had the proper penetration and it worked so it was yeah, great because they have tough hide oh extremely tough hide yeah they do um if if you've never been around a bison cape so when I I caped it and uh the the hair up on the back of the neck and around the horns is probably almost an inch thick it is just as, as you probably saw with yours. So I can, you know, I, I've done a few elk, and I can pretty much by myself solo with one blade, quick quarter an elk and have it processed and ready to go. Straps out, you know, heart, ready to go. That's skinned. We went through five, six knives, three people, completely <laughs> wore out. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's I, it. I tanned mine, rugged it, right? I just European the skull. But I was like, ah, that'll make an awesome winter blanket on my bed. <laughs> think again you put that thing on hey you, you sweat to death but you can't move you're like uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it stayed on our bed one night it's yeah. it's warm i yeah. i mean i know why teepees were made out of buffalo <laughs> yep absolutely yeah but I, I could feel like i feel a little closer to our our you know ancestral bow hunter kin having now hunted a bison with a bow yeah it is something special and uh it's unfortunate that you know we don't have we have limited license availability um, in in the state of Wyoming, but uh, you know I I so much better for having that opportunity and it was just it was just great. I enjoyed it so much. It took us two years to eat our bison. We had lots of bison <laughs> burger. Yeah, I had 500 pounds of hamburger from that bison because um, I didn't do as many steaks because I knew it was an older one. Um, and stuff. So um, all my, all of my, I have uh, two or two sisters and a brother, and then I have two brothers-in-law, and they all got 80-pound boxes of bison Ooh. for for Christmas presents that year. That's a good gift. Yeah, so they they enjoyed it. They oh, yeah. they expected it every year after that, though. <laughs> <laughs> we processed like, ours at home. Oh wow, you're. Yeah, I was uh, glutton for punishment. Glutton for punishment. Is <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It was so. Uh, what's interesting on bison, the front quarters are heavier and bigger than the hind yes. quarters. Yeah, most people don't realize that. It's sort of like almost like a, a wild hog. The, their rear ends are a lot smaller, and their that's where most of the meat is in the front shoulders. And but they and definitely are a tank. They're they're a they, neat creature, and it's cool that we we as you know hunters have have you know created this environment where we have conservation we cannot ethically and legally hunt them right that yep. if you listen and do a little history and research on the bison the the meat market hunting almost those almost to extinction to extinction yep. and you know conservation minded trcp i think you know theodore roosevelt right Absolutely. when they established the park that park there was a few bison that were left in the park i believe is you know and from that we've grown to now we have bison all over north america again yes we do and uh, so Arizona, Alaska, and Utah were the only places that Pope and Young recognized. And then Wyoming came on board, and now Montana's on board because, mm -hmm. you know, wild bison. And then, of course, there's, there's a large range um, private ranches that also allow bison hunting. And, and yeah. those do contribute yeah. to genetic diversity. I mean, let's, yep. I mean, those guys, are, we can argue about high fence versus free range all day long, but, you know, some of those guys do trade, you know, cows and bulls and back and forth, and they do it's similar to wild as, as far as genetic. Well, and now we have the Wind River Indian Reservation. They're bringing them back, and you yep. know they're they're you're seeing that kind of across the country where people are like, you know, we need to have this resource back on the landscape again, yep. and so it is happening. So switching gears a little bit, you know, you've yes. you've hunted more than just bison <laughs> and have more more than two under your belt. We were showing some photos of kudu before, so you've been to Namibia. Yes, I I've been to I've been fortunate enough in my life to. Uh, I've been to Africa three times, and the first time mentioning kudu, uh, I did show you the Namibia one, but uh, the very first time I went to um, 
right on the Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, South African border in the Limpopo area. And I was fortunate enough, kudu are just elegant, beautiful creatures. Um, you know, when you dream of Africa, I think probably kudu is probably number one on everyone's list. So I, mean, I grew up, gorgeous. you know, in the days of we, we had Sportsman Channel on, on Saturday mornings on TV. <laughs> and yep. if they weren't chasing elk or whitetail or turkey, they were chasing kudu in Africa. And I, when yep. I saw that for the first time, I said, look at these, you know, growing out here in the West, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, turkeys and whitetail didn't really enthrall me. And elk we had readily, readily available in the backyard. But those kudu are, until, I mean, if you haven't ever seen one, if you're listening to this, go go Google kudu and look at those critters. Yes, they they are. You know, the striping, the white striping on them, the sh- well, the, and the chevron on the face. Um and, and they actually have a pretty decent mane on them, too, that oh, most yeah. people don't realize. I, I, I think they look at the face and see the chevron and the white striping, and I think the mane is overlooked, and that's actually if the wind's blowing on it and stuff. I mean, as they walk, the, their walk, I mean, it's like probably watching, uh, you know, I, I know this is a family channel, but watching a supermodel walk down a runway. I mean, the elegance that they have on that. And that's, that's the kudu. I mean, the, yeah. and, but... They call them a gray ghost for That's a reason. That's what I was going to get. They're so cool. That's what I was going to get at. Um, the first time I hunted them in uh, South Africa, I, I probably was looking at a kudu for probably an hour standing out there in the brush, and I didn't even realize it was it was there the whole time. And all of a sudden, it just, you know, oh, I picked it out of the brush, but I'm sure it was standing there looking in my mm-hmm. direction. To, I, I was up in a tree stand. So I was just like, oh, that's what I came here for is to see that. I didn't harvest that one, or but I, but I got to see it. But and that, that was cool. You were talking about that hide. Their hide has that coloration that just blends in with everything so well. And I mean that when I was you know watching Sportsman's Channel or you know or Outdoor Channel or whatever, and watching these guys go after kudu, the thing that always got me. You talked about the elegance, but that hide is just gorgeous, and that spiral of that horn going up is just something unique you know just something that you're definitely not going to get in wyoming but it's just such a cool looking animal it is and and what they say and i don't know if it's true or not but i mean if you look at it because i i have a couple of them at home is that in the spiral they're supposedly able to look down with their eyes down the hole of the spiral yeah on my shoulder mount you can look and you can get positioned with your nose almost touching his you can look past his eyeball. Right, yeah. And so they can tip their head back and look straight behind them, and then they need to move their nose about 20 degrees left and right, and they have just scanned 360 degrees That's without crazy. moving. Isn't that wild? I mean, how that, you know. But if their head's down feeding and they rotate their eye up, they, they can probably scan the area as their head's down feeding. So so that is a real unique thing that, uh, you know, I thought, it, I've heard it enough that uh, I don't think it's urban legend. I think it's really a true thing that, in, a, in an adaptation to the animals. So sort of cool. It is really cool. And so. it's kind of like, you know, sheep, they'll... They'll either broom for feeding purposes or for visual purposes. Right. The, those those curls start yeah. coming up in their vision, and they can't see as well, and they'll intentionally go. And a lot of times, people don't know this, but sheep are dominant-handed, like, you know, footed, like human mm-hmm. beings, left or right-handed. So as they graze a mountain, a lot of times they'll graze one horn will get broomed more, more. than the other because they the prefer steep. that side of the hill grazing right, that steep angle that they're on so yeah yeah it's it's you know so i thought that was neat to go hey these animals are left-handed and right-handed yep. just like people <laughs> yeah yeah so so yeah when i uh, i actually my first trip because i'd never been there before and whatever i shot a smaller kudu something in the you know mid 40 range um but I was perfectly happy with it because I'd never been to Africa. I didn't know if I was ever going to go there again. Um, me and my brother went. It was a great experience. And that, that one, I want to touch on that for just a moment. In, in this industry, I've seen a lot of proclivity towards inches. Right? It's all about inches. It's all about outdoing the next person. And, you know, I've got a picture, and Patrick's seen it, and we'll show it to you. It's one of my favorite pictures up on the podcast. 
It's me and my boy with his arm around my shoulder, and we have a doe antelope in front of us. Absolutely. Right? I mean, I almost get tears talking about it right now because, you know what? It did... It's one of my favorite photos. I've got my four-year-old boy out there. We went out, him and I, spot and stock, doe antelope and harvested one. And he's like, he's wearing his knife on his hip belt. And he's, let's go hunting, Dad. Yep. And, you know, it doesn't have to be about, oh, I shot the, the next world record, which is, it's cool. And I think keeping records is a really healthy thing for the population. It's a great way for biologists to manage how the herd is doing, right? There's something that we're missing if we keep you know just pushing for inches you know and i agree with you i you know last year was my 50th bow season i'm 62 i hope i don't look that bad but you know (laughs) (laughs) you look like you're 21 Ah, hey you know i have this mule named rick and he's stubborn and he packs out two elk almost every year because i i shoot a cow too because my wife and i loved elk meat and we have a lot of friends that actually, um, we, I, I wouldn't shoot something if I didn't have the, where the meat's going to go. And there's something, we've, we've talked about this before, there is something super tribal about inviting your friends over, cooking a meal you went out and harvested, and, and passing it over and going, not only have I put the labor into preparing this for you, I went out and actually procured it. And yeah. that field to table, you know, when, when we've talked about this before, if I pull a package of halibut out and cook dinner for you, I like you. It's a big deal. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, yeah, I, I'll come over for halibut. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the halibut, right? That's right. Yeah, I'll bring some white wine but, to go with it. <laughs> but even if we're doing burgers, mm-hmm. at my house, oh. you, we're not having cow. We're having elk burgers. Oh, yeah. That's our red meat supply, and it always yeah. has been ever since my, you know, I've been married for 38 years, and that, that's our red meat supply. We do buy a few chickens once in a while, predominantly fish. I raise, our, I raise pigs so I can have bacon. Yep. Oh, and my brother lives in Texas, so I go down and I uh, love... Uh, <laughs> Kill some wild hogs. Yeah, March and April is a great There's time. There's plenty to of do, them. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're doing a service for them. Oh, yeah. But, um, but you know... I must. I love stocking. Mule deer is my favorite thing, and then I love stocking out too. And I have shot a lot of animals because the stock was so important to me. I just pulled off a five-hour stock to get within 25, 20 yards, and I used to shoot recurve a lot um, before I uh, tore up my triceps tendon. And so sometimes I was five yards from an animal. I've stood over two mule deer for over five hours. One I shot, one I did not. Stand for That's five incredible. hours next to an animal. You get to know it. You get With an almost touching distance. Yes. At least spitting distance. Yes. And so, so sometimes I shoot, a, I shoot because I just put in a super stock, and it's great. It's a great day. Me and this animal have this connection all day. Because when I was younger, I used to go out and... I would see an animal and I'd go after it because I was like, well, I'll find another one. Now my philosophy is, well, I find an animal that I, it's either in a great stocking position or I want to go after it. I'm like, oh, we've got all day to play. So it's there's this total- natural progression that I've seen across bear hunters, across fishermen, across hunters. And it's first, I just want to harvest a fish. I just want to shoot a bear. I just want to kill a deer, right? And then it's, I want to kill lots of deer and catch lots of fish and shoot lots of bears. And then it's, I want to shoot big bears. But then you finally see guys either transition just purely to, I want to take a great photo of a bear, right? Or they transition to, I want to harvest this fish in this location this time of year with this lure. I want to make it the hardest way I, you know, humanly possibly could to make this done. And then when, when you... Are capable of succeeding at that it's it's that next level of challenge it's like you said i went to a recurve right well why'd you go away from a compound because it was harder because it was a next was, level of was, challenge well i started out when i was you know i started shooting a bow when i was six and i i hunted through high school with a recurve and then in college i went to a compound and then i moved here and a lot of the archers in this area were shooting them and and it was fun they're, they're great i love shooting them i probably harvested over 100 animals with the recurve and so it was a lot of fun so it, it was a very very tough decision for me to go away from it because i 
The biggest fear was that I wouldn't shoot every day because I love shooting every day. And in my house in Dayton, I can shoot. I've got a 60-yard range in my inn, so I shoot all the time. My neighbor thinks I'm absolutely crazy. It's snowing out, dude. It's uh, it's eight degrees. I said, yeah, this is what I hunt in. <laughs> You're like, this so, works. So, yeah. So even my wife thinks I'm a little crazy at times, but... So, for example, you said that there's some animals on the wall behind you. This year, that particular elk, the year before I killed a 335-inch bull. That's a pretty decent bull in my book. That's um, a decent bull in anybody's book. Now, this year, that's a smaller six-point. But what, what it was is I watched these elk for probably three hours in the morning, and they, they went up into an area that I said, you know, to get close to those, you would almost have to do that perfectly. And so they were on the side of a canyon. I had to go out where they could see me for probably a half mile down and work around. They obviously didn't see me. It was five bulls together. And then I had to come down and almost backslide down off of a couple of cliffs and get above them. And then I stood there for three hours until that, that bull stood up. There was another bull that was probably bigger, but when he stood up, I shot and killed him, you know, and so I started at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning. I killed him at 4 in the afternoon. And I shot him because, I mean, just to pull that off, to get there across that open, because it wasn't, it, it, this was an area down by Laramie Peak, and it's more, it's, there's not a lot of timber there. It's, it's uh, that mountain mahogany, lots of cliffs, lots of really steep shoots and stuff. And that's, I was so thrilled with that, that, you know, that's just... And, and the Wapiti were a plains animal. We've chased them into the mountains. I mean, they, yeah. And it's yeah. neat to when you get them out there. We we have that red desert close to us. That's uh-huh. a really good. And getting out there and just looking at those elk. It's oh yeah. I'm so used to seeing them up in the mountains. It's it's a little bit different to you know see a couple big bulls laying in a sagebrush patch. But <laughs> it sure when that sun comes up and they're standing on a little butte or mesa. It's, it's pretty neat. It's yeah. It is. You know, yeah, we're so lucky in Wyoming that we get to see those things and experience it and have wildlife as part of our everyday life. I mean, I I don't think people realize that wildlife, whether we're fishermen, whether we uh, are skiers, whether we are just, you know, someone that just enjoys the outdoors or whether we're hunters, that wildlife is part of our everyday living in Wyoming. And we are extremely blessed to have that Absolutely. as a society we need to get back to we don't need to be apart from nature we are a part of nature and we need to get back to where our kids realize that that's a part of why patrick and i have started this podcast is to promote help get the word out there that yes you can take your kids out and go look at ladybugs go i mean we talked about it the other day Go get flashlights and pull worms out of the garden to go catch rainbow trout with. That was one of my favorite so things fun. as a kid was catching the worms to go catch the fish. <laughs> yeah, yep. I, I, that, those are all great experiences and, uh, and just bring smiles to all of our faces when we think about it. Yep, absolutely. I know my, my four kids, you take them night crawler hunting, they're a happy group of kids they love it because they get to stay up late for one yeah and their and two, hands are in the dirt hands are in the dirt you know talk about and connection it's a to challenge the earth. too i mean you gotta be fast you gotta be quick you better <laughs> yeah, be quick you, you put that flashlight on them you better be going <laughs> so i used to really like hunting that involved deception waterfowl turkey uh-huh. yes i i i, I even elk i avoid you know tricking the vocalizations or whatever but I'm getting more and more. This this last hunt and the film that's coming out is a doll sheep hunt, and that's just purely spot and stock, right? And yep. I I love to just climb to the highest peak, take a spotting scope, and look at everything around lower than me, and then finally go, ah, there's one, and kind of like a bird swoop down, and then figure out how to how can I sneak in here? And he's laying there and you know has no idea that I'm even. So I'm I'm getting more and more to where. And, you know, I have, after killing a few elk with a bow, and I, I keep telling my wife I can die after I kill one more elk with a bow, and then I kill one more, I'm like, well, i got to kill <laughs> one more. <laughs> it but is addicting. It is addicting. I, I don't have a mule deer over 200, and I don't have a mule deer over 30 inches, and I don't have a big one with a bow. So I, my goal is to, you know, and that's, I've killed a bunch of deer. That's not mm-hmm. the issue. And I, 
I don't want to kill any deer. I want to kill the deer, and I want to kill it how I want to kill it with a bow. Well, good luck to you, man, because that, that's a good quest. So how many years, you know, have you been hunting Wyoming hard? Did you say about... I moved here in 1982. 82? Yes. So 38 so, years or so? Yep. That's a pretty good run. And you grew up in South Dakota, so you right. probably started hunting more there than anywhere, right? Yeah, I got my... Uh, so when I was six years old, my sister was born on my birthday, so I got a bow and arrow. And uh, I So you share was, a birthday with your sister? Yes. And so, That's pretty But cool. my parents weren't around. I was with my grandparents. And uh, I was hiding in the back porch when my grandpa come in from working on the farm, and I shot him with my bow and arrow and got it taken away on my birthday also. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like so, it. So, yeah, he wasn't very happy with it. Grandpa's I, out there everywhere. Beware. <laughs> so, and this wasn't rubber tips either. This, this is those uh, press, point. press steel points on those wood shafts, Ouch. you know, because it was a fairly decent bow. But yeah, I started hunting with a bow and arrow when I was 12 in South Dakota. And when I was a senior in high school, I shot my first deer. And there was only like three or four people in uh, Chamberlain, South Dakota that hunted deer with a bow and arrow. And I was like the, the high school hero. And it was just a mule deer doe. But oh my God, I was so proud and I worked so hard to get that, you know. And so that was really cool. And that was with a recurve and, and uh, uh, old Ben Pearson Shakespeare pony. Um, I don't even, I still have the bow. Um, I have my grandpa's first bow, I have my dad's first bow, and I have my first bow. And uh, so I, I have those in my uh, little room that I have a lot of my trophies and stuff in. So. I have a Ben Pearson as well, and that's what I've been I'm <laughs> attempting to shoot a doe antelope with. There we'll, you go. We're going to get go. it done one of these days. That's cool. But yeah, so, so yeah, last season was my 50th year, and I look forward to each season with even more zest than before. I don't know why I have that. Some people lose that drive. I have not. My wife is very supportive. I have two sons. Um, one took up bow hunting early and was very successful. Um, even shot a couple of things with a recurve. Had a Browning 43-pound bow. And then that was my older son. And he sort of drifted away. But my younger son, who uh, uh, lives in the area, um, when uh, I shot a really big moose back in 1996, and uh, he was helping me quarter it out, I would put a rope around a leg and tell him to go around the aspen tree as I was cutting it up and, and stuff. And and uh, he said, Dad, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill me a big moose someday. And when he was 14, he drew a tag and shot a Boone and Crockett um, bull with his wow. uh, bow and arrow at, at 14. 14. Well, cool. both of my boys started out. They never rifle hunted until. They were in their mid-20s when they were away from me. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, they've that's just what they grew up with, and so that's what they started. And, and you were showing a, a picture of your, uh, your son earlier. And uh, so my son, when he was 12, the youngest one, well, they both shot an antelope and a white-tailed doe their first year at 12 years old with a bow and arrow. And, uh, but anyway, my, my younger boy, he was really small. And so I got him next to this this whitetail, I mean this uh, antelope doe that he shot um, just south of Cheyenne. And I mean, the head and neck look as big as he is. I, I just love that photo. I have it on the wall in my That's my cool. shop because you know those memories and just to be with them when that when those things occurred are just fantastic. You know, and that just you know, it's part of my life. And, and as as you asked, I mean, you know, I look forward to it every year and. Uh, and uh, it's just um, had great, great memories from it. It's led me down different paths. I was president of this Bowhunters of Wyoming organization that mm -hmm. we're here at from 1990 to 1996 and wanted to bring in bowhunter education at the time, which I thought was really a good thing because bow hunting is different than rifle hunting and you need to know a little bit more about it. And it never was mandatory, but it became really where a lot of people said, yeah, I think I should take that. So in the game of fish has never made it mandatory, but does back us with uh, instructional material and stuff like that. So that's a good thing. Yeah. It's really grown, too. I mean, oh, so what are some of the uh, big changes you've seen, you know, over the years in, in the state, in the sport, and, and things you can kind of put your finger on as far as 
are we headed in a positive direction or, or what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that it's a two-edged question because what do we do with some of the technology that's out there? Just in, you know, when I started out, there was no range finders. There was no trail cameras. There was now, now we have trail cameras that take photos in you, you know, and send them to you on your cell phone. And it, it, I'll people? be honest, if I was had 40 acres whitetail hunting, then that's what I own back east. That's a cool piece of technology yeah you know for me for here it can be two three hours the mountains it, it really and i don't have cell service it, it doesn't appeal to me but i could see how somebody yeah. could be use that nefariously yeah. drones i mean that's that's a whole issue in itself what do they do there i mean i've heard some horror stories on drones chasing uh, deer on the winter range on horn droppage and stuff like that hunting has always been a thing of self-management and I just hope that... For, for, gener- for hundreds of years, it's had to have been self-management, right? And I just, you know, I hope that the drive for, as we talked earlier, and, and I briefly touched on it, that yes, do I love to shoot something with big horns? Yes. But do I shoot a, a cow or a four-point elk because I want elk meat in the freezer? Yes. So I hope that it's not totally driven to the point that it's for being on TV, being on the star and social media, or where you get all of your hunting stuff for free, you know, as mm-hmm. sponsorships and stuff. It's going to occur, but I, I hope that the average person is still out there to enjoy friends, enjoy your moment with nature and your children, and I hope it goes that way. So my company, one of my company's taglines is never miss the moment, right? And that transitions more than, but oh, we're going to create the environment where you won't miss that big bull elk no it's you need to never miss any moments in life whether that's fishing hunting family and i think you, you've touched on it that we we see this well somebody shot a spike deer and we're going to shame them and i've said this on this podcast before and i'll say it again and i'll say it to people you know what if if some guy like yourself takes out the neighbor kid down the street and takes him on his first deer hunt and you guys shoot a spike deer that's your tag and your decision and shaming you at the gas station. Because if you, sh- if you confront somebody and say, well, you shouldn't have shot that deer, maybe you're going to take that kid that could be an advocate for hunting and he has such a negative experience encounter, he never goes again. Yeah. Yeah. And so don't, you know, don't judge somebody else's trophy. Because I told you at the beginning of this, my picture with one of my favorite trophies is a doe antelope. Yep. I yep. yep. And I came back with the same story on my youngest son. You know, my yep. oldest son was a doe, doe yep. whitetail. So, so yeah, I mean. And yours was a mule deer doe in high school, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, so enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy if at that moment that is the deer or the elk or the antelope that you want to take, take it and be happy with it. Go home with a smile on your face that you got that opportunity to do it. And enjoy that meat. I mean, that's oh. that's like the, for me, that's like the best part because I enjoy Nature's eating grocery it. store. It's, just, it's amazing stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lean organic protein. Yeah, but, I agree. So what advice, we, we touch on this a lot on this podcast because we do want our kids and, you know, spouses and everybody else to be involved in the sport. So what advice do you give having raised some kids into hunting do you give to uh, young fathers and mothers out there that are trying to get their kids into the sport? Well, my advice would be because there are, there's a lot of parents that didn't have parents that hunted. You've got a couple different roads you can go down. And we're and I'm talking Wyoming. So there's a lot of hunters in Wyoming. And um, so, you know, if you can find a friend, don't be afraid to ask them because most people, myself included, are just willing to wait. I have two kids that mow my yard. And I said, come on over, I'll teach you. They both shoot a bow, but they don't hunt with the bow. I said, come on over and I'll teach you. I'll tune your bows and get you ready for that moment that you decide you want to hunt with the bow. But also just go out and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Go, go out with them. Buy a license. And, you know, you might surprise yourself what you come across. And just go out and try it. Um, but... If you don't know, if you're going gun hunting, I would suggest that, well, obviously you have to take the hunter's safety and stuff, but also go to a shooting range. And most people, if you walk in Wyoming, I haven't ever found where someone chews me out to go ask them a question. Um, 
you know, if you go to a shooting range, ask them to say, hey, you know, uh, I'm not quite sure how to sight in a scope. Because scopes can be tricky on yep. uh, what way you you dial your um, reticle on that. None of uh, us were experts to begin with. <laughs> no. We all had to and, learn all this and stuff. And so as parents, if your kids are interested and you don't want to do it, find a mentor for them. And I think they're out there, you know, and uh, now that... My, my kids are in their early 30s. You know, if, if someone come up and ask me to take a kid out, absolutely I'm going to. Um, I go back to South Dakota every year because that's where I grew up. And uh, the, the rancher whose land my dad was a hired hand on, it's multi-generationals now. I, I uh, have given both of their boys a bow and, uh, and, and you know, have them come out and shoot with me. And, and I think this year is the first one, year that one of them's going to hunt with a bow. And so, so that'll be, you know, they've shot deer with a rifle, but now I think they want to do that. But um, so, yeah, parents, it's, it's a thing that is so rewarding to your children, but it'll turn around and be rewarding to you. So just, just, just do it. Um, and, and don't be afraid to ask. Go down to... Uh, your sporting goods store and say hey is there anybody call the game and fish hey is there anybody because they're out there and they'll yeah. help you I, I i've yet to meet somebody that's hooked on bow hunting or hooked on fishing that gets hooked on drugs <laughs> yes. I, I mean hunting is expensive well, i don't have money no, for drugs i'm gonna back up on that a little bit because uh i do need advil once in a while <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, what, casting musky baits for three or four days straight, I need some Advil. So, well, I, I don't know. I think I mentioned it earlier. I have this mule. His name is Rick, and he's really stubborn. So, I, I'm putting yeah, the pieces yeah, together. So I, yeah. I, I, I pack out most all of my own stuff. And, uh, yeah, when you pack four, four trips on a bull elk or whatever, yeah, I need the Advil. Wow. Yes. So yes. I, I've gone on four doll sheep hunts now. Oh, you lucky person. Yes. You. <laughs> Uh, not all of them successful, but this last one, I, I packed Advil and Tylenol for, you know, one for every day because, you know, you just, you get to where you need a little bit of that. <laughs> well, we took my old man and he ran out of his stash like day two. Oh, he was taking uh, 800 milligrams of the maximum so, dose. <laughs> he started taking mine every day, yeah. so I didn't have any, but... Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. painful. Yeah, and then so. and then you helped pack out his animals. So just saying, there you go. He no, owes you some Advil and Tylenol. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm sure I gave him more than one or two headaches in his life. So. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, yeah. We so. tend to do that, but so you know, you've done a lot of different things. What's what's next on the horizon for you? Do you have hunts that you want to do? And you know, what are your what are your plans? Well, I've been very fortunate. As I said, I've been to Africa three times. I've been to the Northwest Territories. Uh, I've been to Alaska. La two years ago, I wanted to hunt moose again really bad, and I just know that I won't draw in Wyoming. So I went to Newfoundland, and oh, that cool. was a really fun hunt. I shot a nice moose there on day number six. Um, we got to hear about Zumbo going there, and mm -hmm. that sounded like a quite the adventure. Yeah, so I mean, they blast. don't have monstrous moose, but, I mean, it's an area where you can get a tag you can go and uh it, you know mine was like 37 inches wide you know but the hunt was fantastic now if i had the money i would uh i would have bought a uh woodland caribou they had some monster woodland caribou there where i was hunting and two guys shot um woodland caribou there one up in the 390s which i'm Jeez. wondering if it's going to be in the top five that's a big world. animal oh it was huge i was just like so my things have changed a little bit i mean i would still like to shoot uh one more big elk um but um if i don't i am not going to be crying i i've really i really like hunting deer a lot and so i mean i put in i'll, I'll be going to iowa this year I have four preference points. I've been to Iowa twice. And so, you know, so that's what, this will be the third time over, what, a 13-year period. I would like to uh, have an opportunity at one more nice mule deer. You know, but then if I say one more, then I'd like one more. So I, you know, <laughs> I, know, I know how that goes. You know, I can die after one more but, elk. But I have really, I probably won't, I probably won't do as much traveling as 
I have in the past. I was just very fortunate. Now I'm, I'm retired and I don't have quite as much of an income, but I still am okay. So, you know, and my brother hunts in Kansas a lot. And so I hunted with him a couple times there. I haven't ever shot a deer there, but uh, it intrigues me that I'll go back there. I do put in every year again for, you know, I, I've drawn a, in Wyoming, I've drawn a sheep tag, three moose tags, and two bison tags. Wow. Can you be any luckier than that? No. And so, so, so if I draw, you know, and I've filled them, filled them all. So that was really, um, so I have stories, you know, I have a lot of stories to tell. But yeah, I guess back to your question. It just dawned on me. I want to stay healthy mm-hmm. enough to continue to do the thing I love. So you say, what hunts, do, what hunts do I answer. have? I want to, con- I want to stay healthy. I'm 62. Mm-hmm. I ride a lot of bike, I play a lot of sports still, and uh, I just want to stay in good enough shape that I continue to do the thing I love for another 10 or 15 years. How's that? For Sounds like a great answer to me. I think that's great. You know, fishing and hunting, and those are lifelong activities, and you know, you want to be able to be physically healthy enough and able to go do those things. So that's, that's People a call answer. them hobbies or pastimes, and I'm sorry, but in our households, it's it's a lifestyle. It's it's what and we do, too. Yeah. right? I mean, yeah. and you, it's kind of. I'm a little bit of a car guy too, right? A little <laughs> bit. And Patrick's seen my car that I built, and I bought this '38 Chevy pickup in high school, and I spent ten years restoring it and souping it up a little bit. But I drive a, a Geo Metro back and forth to town every day, right? <laughs> I'm not going to talk to you about my Geo Metro. I'll talk to you about my '38 <laughs> Chevy yeah. pickup. But I'm not. When you come over, like I said, and we we have dinner. I'm not going to serve you chicken from the store. I'm not going to serve you <laughs> regular old box brand hamburgers. We're going to have backstrap or antelope or halibut or, or something I've procured and put a lot of time and effort and enjoy into, yeah, honestly. And that's what I'd want you to serve me anyway. Yeah, you want the halibut. I know. I'm the same way. I like that halibut. Yeah. I got a good uh, pheasant recipe wrapped in bacon. Well, let's hear it. Brown sugar. Yeah, share it with us. Well, I, I grew up in South Dakota, so I mean, pheasants were a big thing. So Pheasant central. Oh, yeah. I mean, you... you you had to figure out multiple ways. So one of my favorites is to take a, a pheasant and uh, full body, wrap it in bacon, and then um, cook it for a while, and then do a, a melted butter and brown sugar glaze over it. <laughs> that sounds pretty dang good. It's really crispy on the outside, and that holds all the moisture in. And uh, yeah. So, yeah. I think my mouth's watering now. <laughs> that sounds really good. I like pheasant anyway, so. Yeah. So. Well, I... I will. I got a new pheasant dog this year, and I got a new pheasant shotgun. And one of these days, when I get the big game out of my system, I can foresee a day when all David does is get up at about 7:30, have his eggs and bacon, load the dog in the truck, <laughs> drive down the road, go shoot my two pheasants by 10, come home, have my lunch, and take a nap. You, you, with with the bacon, you better walk a few miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you haven't seen me shoot a shotgun yet, so <laughs> we like bacon. Yeah. So David, oh. David, and I both raise pigs that we butcher and make our own bacon with high mountain seasonings. And I'll tell you what, man, that homemade bacon—that's where it's at. All right. Well, I'll that's be back stuff. in the morning. You better have it ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh, yeah, I, I unfortunately do like bacon also, but I make a lot of breakfast sausage too. Out of that's my good stuff. Animals, so yep. But, uh, my brother turned me on to making some breakfast sausage. We took about 20 pounds of pork and elk, mixed it all together, and made it. And it's it's pretty good. So, uh, so here here's a little thing that I like doing, but you got to be careful because it doesn't last real long. Is is <laughs> antelope? Um, grind it with uh, bacon ends instead of suet. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, good stuff. That's that's good. So. Well, anything you put uh, fat into is not going to last as long. So don't. Don't take your whole antelope, grind it up, and do that. But no, certainly take yeah, some. It's about a six-month um, longevity yeah. on it. So I yeah. take in saran wrap and vacuum seal all mine. Mm-hmm. And as long as you don't drop those packages and poke holes in the, you know, don't let them fall out of the freezer. Yeah. But, you know, occasionally our, our meat rotation in the freezer gets a little bit off. <laughs> and I like to be eating year-old stuff, right? Yeah. So a- anything that gets killed this year gets eaten next year. And everything that got killed last year gets eaten yeah. this year. But we did find about a three-and-a-half-year-old bison package when we moved. Opened it up, ate it. It was just fine. Just good. 
Great. It takes a little more work, you know, up front to saran wrap and vacuum seal, but it's an investment that's completely worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I also like to do, I don't know if you like this for breakfast sausage, but do you ever make chorizo? Yeah. So one of my favorite recipes is using the chorizo package that High Mountain sells, you know, because it's perfect. You know, you get that, you mix it up with some pork. Oh, my gosh. That is some of the best breakfast sausage you'll ever eat. It's still delicious. So as I mentioned one time earlier in the, in the podcast is that um, my brother um, lived down in Texas, and so I'd go down there and hunt hogs, and that's a good white meat. Mm-hmm. And so made a lot of sausage out of that from breakfast to whatever and, and stuff. So that's what makes a good chorizo is that, uh, that wild pork from down there. So Sounds delicious. Uh, yeah. I'm going to have to go see my uncle down in Fort Worth. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, just, just my own curiosity, spot and stock with, with a stick bow, right? Yep. What, what are some tips to give a guy to be a little bit more successful to, mm-hmm. you know, some do's and don'ts of, because it's you know with my with a compound you know 55 yards on a mule deer it's we're gonna we're gonna seal the deal that's that's not even in the wheelhouse with my recurve. Right. Number one is patience up the yin yang. <laughs> you know if you spot the animal and they're feeding or whatever you know and then watch where they bed down then that's your then next is your biggest decision of the day. Is it in a stockable spot? What makes spot stockable? You know, is it under a cliff? Is it where you have a rock or a tree? Is it where the wind is going to stay consistent all day? A lot of the area where I hunt, the wind was out of the north in the morning, but by 10 o'clock it's coming out of the southwest. So if it's not in a stockable spot, will you just w- wait and watch another day till it moves? Yeah. I, I, I have stalked and killed mule deer when they're on their feet. It's twice as hard. Okay, Maybe so three times as hard. Number two. Then when you make sure that you, when you are circling around it, that number one, I like to keep the deer in sight. So whether it, and it's mostly it's horns. So sometimes you have to go out of sight because then all of a sudden if the deer got up and moved only 10 yards, you don't know where it's at. And so, so when I'm circling around, I try to keep the deer in sight Sometimes it's impossible, but I'll get it back in sight as soon as possible. And then when you're coming in from behind it, above, below, whatever, whatever, you know, because you want the wind, um, make sure it's consistent. And then secondly, I've made adaptations. So I used to take off my shoes and put on, you know, a wool sock or whatever. Um, (laughs) Too many cactus in the feet, so I put on those (laughs) sneaky feet. And, and over boots that slip oh, over your shoes, yeah, so you still have and, rubber shoes right, on. Right, and I, I like like a, a real light, like a keen Targi 2 or something like that as a boot. Something, you know, not a real heavy, heavy boot. Um, even, you know, I've hunted in all the Sol- Solomon uh, sneakers. But uh, anyway, and then take your time. Two steps is two steps closer. If that two steps, you know, and take a rest, don't push it, go real slow. And one of the things that, <laughs> when I used to take my shoes off and come in in socks, um, make sure you make remember where your shoes are at. But because um, <laughs> I have uh, looked for them for a long time, but like I've adapted, my water thing is right here on my shoulder. So my camelback is right on my right hand side. All I have to do is lower my. So you don't. You don't lift your hands up. You can just lower your head down and bite it and take a drink. Bingo. Because you're going to get thirsty in an hour or five hours waiting. Five, yeah. I mean, I would say a typical wait is two. Okay. And two hours. Just just stand in your living room for two hours. I can't sit down and watch a movie for two hours. <laughs> and that's with something entertaining. So, so that's still, the yeah. thing, you know. Just like I mentioned earlier, don't rush it. You've got all day. Here's, here's the animal. You decided you wanted to shoot this animal. You know, you've got all day. And then so we, does he. So Yes. And so once you so get So what's it, the rush? What's the rush? Now, they are going to stand up. They are going to shift position. And so just freeze. I've had deer stand up, look right at me. I've had where I've stalked in on three or four deer. And the deer I'm after, I've had other ones get up and walk. I, I mean, like, I'm like 20 yards. And they'll walk between me and the deer. And they'll look at me like, what's... Now I have also had where they've looked at me and just totally freaked out. But I've had 
more than often they'll just look at you like, what is that? I didn't remember that there, but uh, it's not moving. They and go, the other deer, they're the not alarmed, deer, so bingo, must be fun. They'll go back and bed down. And so, so yeah, so it's so patience. Patience. And the biggest thing that I see that most people don't do is glassing. I spend more time behind my glass than, than anything. I mean, you move 10 steps in that side canyon is now a totally different view that, you know, you just are, are passing and stuff. So, so I would say that as I've gotten older, you know, my success on stocking has went way, way up because I'm a lot more patient. It makes sense. So wind, patience, make sure they're in a stockable position and, and take your time. watch your sun. You peek over a cliff and your shadow's sticking over the cliff, you're done. So I've waited before I've reached over, knowing a deer's down there. I saw his horn and I'm watching my shadow to the side or whatever and just say, okay, I can't, I can't shoot him for an hour. And some of our listeners will have seen this, but on the full draw film tour here in Wyoming, one of the hunters, was a few years ago maybe, he, uh, one of the hunters reaches up on a nice mule deer and grabs the deer's horns and shakes it. And the deer didn't quite wake up, and he does it again, and then the deer pops up and bounds away. Wow. wasn't one he, for whatever reason, was going to shoot. But if I hadn't have seen that footage with my own eyes... I've never seen that, so... I'll yeah, have we'll have to find it and look at it. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's the deer bedded in like a... You know, just a little ditch the size of this table, and the guy came over the top and just woke that deer up. Wow. <laughs> now I've stood on a big rock that uh, where I was probably two and a half yards from a deer. All I could see was its nose, its little bit of its front fork, and its feet. I never killed that deer, but uh, I was standing there for a long time waiting for it to stand up. But he stood up and turned and looked at me, and like he, he wasn't one that uh, that wasn't there before. <laughs> so we have some footage from the Brooks Range of a doll sheep ram. At those kind of distances. Yeah. So. Cool, cool. Yeah. So. And that's coming out soon. Well, thanks again for yeah. coming on the podcast. This is a lot of fun. I'm glad that we're here at this event because we get to meet people like you. So this is a lot of well, fun. I enjoyed it very much, guys. Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot. And it's a lot of fun. I, I love to uh, just share stories with people. So it's. Well, we're going to put the picture of that bison on there because it really is. It's a monster. It's a big bison. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Take All care. Right.